Velkommen til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Bak Hansen, og jeg præsenterer denne podcast med highlights fra det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i den sorte diamant. Kritiske forfattere er ikke længere en trussel for undertrykkende regimer. Dette er ifølge den indiske forfatter Aundati Røy et globalt problem. Hun blev selv fængslet for sin litteratur, der forbrød sig mod den offentlige moral i Indien, men nægter at opgive sin politiske kamp. I samtale med forfatter Carsten Jensen taler hun om Indiens politiske uro, forfatterens kunstneriske ansvar og kvindekroppen som politisk slagmark. God fornøjelse. So welcome on Daddy Roy. Thank you. It's Thank an you. honor to have you with us here tonight and I'm very honored to be chosen as the one who <laughs> interviews you. And uh, we've just seen a little movie which is a panoramic uh, mini portrait of a very big and complex nation, divided nation at war with itself. But it's also a mini portrait of your writing that tries to encompass that complex nation. And at first we see um, the motorways and we see a man riding on a horse and we learn that his name is Saddam or that's what he calls himself. If you read the novel, you will also learn that he calls himself Saddam Hussein. Uh, not because it's his role model or hero, but for other reasons. You hear a woman talking about living in a graveyard where everybody are welcome, not because they are dead, but because it's become a kind of sanctuary of the living, of the marginalized. And we are with Hindu fanatics in the streets of Gujarat, uh, getting ready to massacre Muslim citizens. We are in Kashmir, uh, the most militarized spot on this planet where there are half a million uh, Indian soldiers and we are in the jungles of central India with Maoist guerrillas uh, and you have been to all these places you have reported on them you've written passionately about the plight of all these people and we end up Um, being back in your novel, there is a quote from it um, about how do I tell a shattered story um, and then you say something that in the ears of a writer is a bit of a paradox it's not just about trying to become everybody but trying to become everything um, which seems a very big, almost impossible ambition. Um, but let's start with your novel. Um, and um, it is dedicated to some people you call the unconsoled. And who are they? And why have you dedicated your novel to them? Well, I think um, the unconsoled is, is most of us. But when I was pressed on this subject in New York recently, I said that 
It's everybody who pretends to be happy on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> but not That's a lot of people. <laughs> that's a lot of people. But no, I mean, uh, I think the unconsoled is, uh, you know, whoever feels that way, isn't it? Like people who don't admit it or people who do. People who don't admit it are probably far more lonely and far more in need of consolation. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not necessarily what we think. It's not necessarily just poverty or brutality or uh, um, being a minority in a majoritarian nation that makes you the unconsoled, I think the human race today is facing a kind of uh, a kind of situation which isn't necessarily what it faced in World War One or World War Two or when the nuclear bombs were dropped in Japan, you know, but almost something interior now of what technology is doing to us. It's even questioning what exactly is a human, can we create one synthetically. So the unconsoled is a very, very big universe. It's, it is as if this graveyard, in a way, where everybody are welcome, as it is said in the little movie, is a kind of temporary, let's call it that, paradise, not for the innocent, but for the experienced, those who have been tested and tried, but also those who have, uh, are marginalized, have uh, identities which are not recognized by society in general. The main character is um, Anjum, who is transgender. She's born as uh, a hermaphrodite and chooses to become a woman. And her mother, in her Urdu language, there is no word for a hermaphrodite, because you're either he or she. You, it's very fixated on gender. So, in a way, what she's trying to do, I feel, is the same as you're trying to do as a writer, to create a new, more expansive language for new experiences. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, the thing is that there are, I mean, there are many ways in which I'd like to talk about this. First of all, just literally, you know, a graveyard in India today is, uh, you know, because Hindus don't have graveyards, Hindus are cremated. So a graveyard is generally a Muslim graveyard, except in certain places like Kerala or, you know, where there are very tiny Christian mm. minorities. So the graveyard today, given what is going on in terms of the, the, the rise of Hindu nationalism, which I don't feel that anyone in the world is fully aware of the threat of what is happening there, you know, because India is a market-friendly place and therefore, as we know, many crimes are forgiven as long as you're open for business. So, uh, so the graveyard is also a ghetto in India today. A graveyard, the graveyard is also where uh, the Muslim community who number in the millions 
tens of millions, I think it's 150 million people who are being, it's not just that there's lynching and killing, but also being pushed out of the economic uh, system. You know, their businesses, leather trade, meat, uh, cattle, handicrafts, all of it is being threatened. So, so graveyards are places where people live, they are ghettos. You know, it's not only a place for the dead. It's also a place for the dead, let's say. Uh, but uh, regarding Anjum, uh, actually all the characters in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness are people who have a sort of incendiary border running through them. As India, India is a society that many Westerners think of as an anarchic place because, you know, when you come there, it looks like an anarchy and the traffic and the cows and, you know, the usual sort of tourist stuff. But actually, it's not anarchic. It's, it's like this, you know, it's a vertical grid of, of uh, religion, caste and ethnicity. Uh, everyone lives in that grid. Very few people transgress it. Transgression is often met with severe punishment, except amongst the very, very elite, you know. So, uh, identity is something that is forced on people there. But then, if you look at someone like Anjum, you know, she, yes, uh, the Urdu word for, for, for her is hijra. And hijra is, of course, her mother knows that one word doesn't make a language. Urdu, in Urdu, every chair or table or glass or jug or piece of paper or musical instrument has a gender, but not her baby, you know. But there is a word called hijra, which means a body in which a holy soul is trapped. And feudal India has always had a place for that too, a marginalized space for a space. But in today's time, Anjum's identity as a Shia Muslim born in Old Delhi is a far more dangerous one than that of being a Hijra. So she actually gets caught in the massacre of Muslims that took place in 2002 in Gujarat when Modi was the chief minister. And she gets caught in it because she's a Muslim and she survives it because she's a Hijra and they believe that killing a Hijra brings you bad luck, you know. So the identities of characters are not so simple, you know. And you were mentioning the char character called Saddam Hussein. He's actually an, a, a chamar, which means a skinner, which belongs to a caste of untouchables. And he has watched a Hindu mob turn on his father and kill him in full public view. And he renounces Hinduism and says he's a Muslim. And he has a video in his phone of the execution of Saddam Hussein of Iraq. And he's very impressed by the dignity with which Saddam goes to his death, you know. So he says, even if he was a bastard, I want to be a bastard like him. And then I want if I die, I'll die like him. So he calls himself Saddam Hussein. So he has that border of caste and religious conversion, which is absolutely incendiary in India, running through him. It has a history of many, many years, you know, and the anxiety of people co converting. It's, it's a very uh, burning question there now.
or you have Musa, a Kashmiri man who has the border, a national border running through him, the other woman, Tilotama, as well as, you know, it's, it's often people, because I think it's a trope with people, you know, that, oh, you know, novel, this novel, not just mine, but it's a kind of novel that's written about people who are down and out or the dregs of society or whatever. But no, this book is about a universe in which even the elite play an important role. So they have, you have a character called, his name is Biklov Daskupta, but his friends call him Garson Hobart because that's the name of a character he plays in a school play. And he's a very elite upper caste, very, very powerful man who works for, an, uh, for the elite intelligence services, who, who in a way has a border running through him too, because half of him is the voice of the Nehruvian sort of upper caste secular state, which has been deposed by these Hindu nationalists now. But he has that way of even watching or witnessing something terrible and not reacting as the state does not because it waits and it puts it into perspective and he's that guy, you know, and half of him is a sort of drunk, thwarted lover. So through these people who all have a grid running through them, who are off the grid, you know, so you shine a light on this society that lives in this extremely rigorous hierarchy. All your characters have more than one identity. They are several characters that are not always in conflict with each other. And I couldn't help thinking of a book written by an Indian Nobel Prize winner, the economist Amartya Sen, who wrote this book, Identity and Violence, where he claims that we all have more than one identity, and this attempt to almost imprison us in just one identity is the cause of violence, is the cause of hatred, is the cause of this thinking, them and us, which seems to be spreading in India, because reading not just your novel, but especially your political writings, you are somehow continuously losing your benign illusions about India, because if I go back like 20 years and read the essays by Salman Rushdie, India was often presented as a kind of almost role model democracy, a pluralistic mm -hmm. society where <clears throat> different religions were able to coexist without conflict. And today this is changing dramatically. Actually, it's not it's never been the case that it was a plural democracy where people coincided. You know, one of the problems is the, the level of misrepresentation that has taken place. Uh, for example, everything that I'm talking about now, everything, whether it is the bludgeoning to death of people being accused of killing cows, or whether it's the conversion of untouchables to Hinduism or to other religions. It all started 150 years ago. It has a, a, a direct uh, line of descent from there. You can see it very clearly. And one of the troubles has been that uh, there's been such a, such a, such a huge 
let's say that let's say that a colonized country like india when you have a nationalist struggle at a particular point the scholarship the cultural production has the uh, i mean that nationalism has a legitimacy because it is fighting colonialism which in when it was british colonialism you could see it very clearly okay so this is the bad white man and here are the virtuous natives fighting truthfully the caste system was as vicious a form of colonialism as anything else you know but we then forget the complications of that and what starts out as a legitimate national movement ends up in this kind of toxicity and you have i mean i have written about this and i'm sure the audience might not want to hear this but one of the greatest uh scams <laughs> of how someone has been represented is the representation of mahatma gandhi you know i mean it's incredible how much falsehood is around the mythologization of that person you know you you call him the saint of status quo yeah so if you if you actually go to india you will never find a picture of gandhi in a poor person's house you'll only find it in the local district collectors because it's mm. mandatory or in big politicians places or rich people's places you know but i'll just give you a very small example i mean gandhi always said that the caste system was the genius of hindu civilization he did campaign against the practice of untouchability but he believed in the idea of ancestral occupation which is the central theme of caste you know and for example is valorized as all of us are taught and if everyone i mean 99.99% of the world knows about the struggle for independence through richard attenborough's film which is just bullshit <laughs> you know it's just absolute rubbish and gandhi's greatest opponent was someone called dr ambedkar who was himself from an outcast caste one of the most brilliant intellectuals i mean i don't adore him uh unquestioningly but certainly he was gandhi's biggest enemy doesn't make an appearance in that film but when i was uh, writing about this i started thinking where did these views on caste i mean we used to joke of course you know that we were all taught in school that gandhi went to south africa and got thrown off a train and then he began to fight for racial equality and yes we've seen it in the movie he's seen it in the movie <laughs> and we were like really he had to go all the way there to find out about injustice but but in fact he was thrown off the train because he was sitting in a white compartment why because he said indians are upper caste indians are aryans just like white people and we should not be classified with the savages you know and his first 
victory in South Africa was to get a third entrance open to the Durban post office so that Indians and blacks don't use the same entrance. He, when he was in prison, constantly campaigned for separate prisons for Indians. The whole idea of Satyagraha was not developed, uh, the, it was not developed to fight racial segregation. It was developed in South Africa to plead to the British to allow Indian traders to trade in the Transvaal where Indian traders were forbidden to go. So the falsification of all this leads to a situation where you might think that, oh, actually, you know, this, it was this wonderful place and now it's terrible. But I, I mean, truthfully, the organization to which our current Prime Minister belongs, the RSS, which stands for the Russia Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is a national self-help group, set up in 1925. By 1930, its heroes were Hitler and Mussolini. They were visited by these people, and they openly say that, you know, the Muslims of India are like the Jews of Germany. And you could see this coming from 1925, you know. So, it isn't, it isn't that, uh, Shocking! It's it's terrible that it's happening, but 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 you know that this country had to go through this particular tide, given the history of partition and all of that. I remember there was another Indian writer many years ago, Chaturi. Maybe I pronounce it the wrong way. Diary of an unknown Indian. Yes, yeah, yeah. who, who criticized Gandhi for mm. he called him the noble slave, who mm. was too meek and mild mannered, too too passive to really want to change his conditions. He was not. He was not uh, meek in the least. You know, he was a very very. I mean, and see, I don't. I don't want to trash everything about Gandhi. He was a brilliant person. He knew what he was doing. And he was uh, he he was very much. Uh, I mean, he wrote many things. There were things about him that were visionary. You know, his ideas of of uh, consumption of many things were very 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 visionary for today. You know, so I'm not just. I don't want to trash him entirely. Mm. However, I I would say that. You know, when he came back from South Africa, he, the first people who greeted him, he, he came back from South Africa via London, where he was given the Kaiser A. Hind, which is the highest civilian award for service to the empire. So you can imagine how much fighting racial segregation he was doing. And then he came to India and was greeted by all the big Indian industrialists who were now hitting the gla glass ceiling, you know, so the Tatas and the Birlas. He was given these glittering reception ceremonies in Bombay and Calcutta. Then he, was, he went to Gujarat where the big cotton mills were and where there was a lot of labor unrest. And he went on behalf of the mill owners to settle this unrest. And he said, I will, and he always did this, I will speak on behalf of the workers. I will speak on behalf of the 
uh, untouchable community, you know. So he was a great manager of things. I, I wouldn't call him servile or meek. He just knew uh, whose side he was on, you know. And so, uh, you know, the, I mean, the Salt Satyagraha, which is a brilliant piece of political theater. So you can't just, I mean, he was, he was a brilliant man, there's no doubt. But he, he's just not what he's made out to be, you know. That's the thing. But there was a lot of fury in India when you said these things about Gandhi. Yeah, but also there's a lot of fury when people don't understand the truth. I mean, for example, the Dalit community, which is now how untouchables like to call themselves are, uh, I mean, they despise him, many, you know, and, and so it's, there's never any one sort of fury mm. there, you know. There would have been a lot of fury if I had said what a great person mm. he was, you know. But there's a lot of dishonesty, let's say, there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty that goes on around these issues. And sometimes there's a lot of money riding on it, you know? There's a lot of land, all these Gandhi ashrams. Mm. There's a lot of money invested in huge university courses. It's a big thing, it's a big, India's big export, you know? So, in a way, you have to come from the position of quite an outsider mm. to be able to say anything. There's a question you probably heard ever since you published the novel a thousand times. Why a novel now? Because you have a very unusual career. Your first novel, The God of Small Things, were a global sensation. It was praised everywhere. I think it sold around eight million copies and you were sort of welcomed to the elite of international writing. And then you turned your back on fiction for 20 years and dedicated your time to political activism and uh, articles, essays. And you've said somewhere that writing literature, fiction, is about eternity, but writing essays and articles are about urgency, things that cannot wait for that much more, um, at least, if not complicated, then it's a process that takes time to write a literary work. So all of a sudden, was there less urgency? Because when you talk, it doesn't seem like there's less urgency to speak out in these times that are more troubled than ever. So where did the novel and the urge to write the novel come from? Well, basically, you know, when I wrote The God of Small Things, um, one of the things uh, that that I see that I do now uh, when I write fiction is I, I search for language, you know, because um, India is a country where there are 780 languages spoken and, um, you know, 22 official languages and someone like me who's a a hybrid, a person who, whose mother's from Kerala, father's from Bengal, born in Shiloh, you know, so you, I've navigated through many languages. And so when I wrote The God of Small Things, it was, it was somehow imagined in Malayalam and English. And it takes time to, to make that language. It's not just available on the shelf for you to use, mm. you've got to make it. It's slow cooked, you know. And 
and when uh, when uh, soon after you know it was published and it became as you say a very successful book soon after that uh, this hindu nationalist government came to power just months late uh, after and did a series of nuclear tests and suddenly that too was about language the public language of this country changed the public imagination changed things that you couldn't possibly have imagined saying before were being said publicly and i was very much presented as this uh, you know as a representative of this aggressive new nuclear power that was you know going to be the next world economic superpower and i was extremely uncomfortable with with that you know so i wrote uh, uh, an essay called the end of imagination and it was about how like how these it was not just about what the danger of nuclear weapons but what nuclear weapons does to the imagination of a country that possesses them and uh, at that at that point of time i was of course on the cover of every magazine and i was being presented as this you know as this woman who had the world at her feet and suddenly i wrote this essay in which uh, i mean a paragraph which just incensed them and i said if it's anti india and anti hindu to have a nuclear weapon implanted in my brain then i secede i declare myself a mobile republic you know so i was just it was just like the 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 you know that particular world that wanted to embrace me just completely dethroned me immediately and overnight but i fell into another another world of of uh you know of, of resistance of uh, a journey that just took 20 years of expanding my own imagination and i never i never thought just because i had written a successful book it was my duty to keep trying to write you know the son of the god of small things and the aunt of the god of small things and the <laughs> kind of just capitalize on this thing you know for for me i i said then that i'm i'm happy to never write another book until i have a book to write and somewhere during this period of 20 years as i traveled as i met other languages and people and my own experience expanded me anjum and sadam and tilotama and all these people sort of began to float into my life and the slow cooking began again you know and this time it had to be a new language for a book because once you you know it's 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 the the language of the god of small things is a language which freed my blood you know it made me someone who felt okay i can actually write what i'm thinking the way i'm thinking it but when i started writing the ministry i knew that i had to take a big risk i couldn't use that language for this book it's a different book you know and in a way um i had to literally take the language of the god of small things and throw it off a very tall building and rush down and pick up the pieces and that's the shattered heart of the ministry of utmost happiness yeah. 
a lot of the political themes that go through your writing in these 20 years are also in the novel. Kashmir, for example. Uh, the plight of the Muslims. Um, and there is always, which you experience when you write, uh, let's call it a political novel, there is always the danger that it's labeled as political propaganda. And there is a phrase in, in your book which I really noticed and love, where you somehow ask yourself, how much blood can there be in a novel before, in it, good becomes, literature. before it becomes a bad, mm. a bad book? Yeah. Um, so how much politics can there be? Well, I think that, I think that you know, the God, people, people maybe in the West don't totally get how political the God of Small Things was, but uh, it was a very, very political book. For Kerala, I had, uh, for 10 years, I, was, I had a criminal case against me uh, for corrupting public morality. <laughs> you know? And I was like, can, can it be for further corrupting public morality, uh, assuming that public morality wasn't pure till I came along? And, and the judge used to every, you know, I mean, it was a criminal case, so, you know, everybody had gathered and by the time, just then I won the Booker Prize and the judge came and he says, like, every time this case comes before me, I get chest pains, <laughs> you know. But I believe that um, it's impossible to claim that even a fairy tale is not political. And I think this fear of, of, of separating politic, politics and art is a bit grotesque, you know, and it's also part of the domestication of literature, that you feel that if you're political, you're not artistic, whereas I feel that uh, if you don't understand what's going on in, and what is political, I mean, what is happening inside Anjum's body is political, you know, so even if you write a fairy tale, is political, and and my uh, what I wanted to do in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is to undomesticate a, a domesticated novel. You know where you think, oh, it's going to be like five characters, and there'll be a backdrop, and I'll try and tell some political story, or I'll try and give a atmospheric, so it'll be a very interior thing. But for me. The challenge is to be able to write about intimacy with as much agility as you can write about violence, to bring the background to the foreground, to break the novel open and, and, and look at it like a city, you know, that you can get lost in. Make the reader deal with the crowds that we have to deal with every day when we step out of our homes, you know, and not be scared of that. So uh, I'm not in the least bit apologetic about what I try to do, you know? I know there are two writers that have inspired you when it comes to politics and art. John Berger, the British writer, and Edward Galliano, the Urukian writer. Could you say something about their inspiration? John Berger was, uh, um, he, he was a great love of mine, you know? And uh, he, many, many years ago, I, I was in his home, in his little village in the hills of mountains of Switzerland, and he said, 
you open your computer now and read me what you're writing. He, I hadn't said anything about the fact that I was writing fiction, but he somehow knew, and so I started to read parts of the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. This must have been 2008 or something. And he said, uh, he, 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 I told him, I already knew it was going to be called the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, so he used to call mm. me Utmost. And he said, you, you, you have to promise me that, that you, will, you will go back to Delhi and you will do nothing but write this book, because you have to do that. So I swore, uh, slit my wrists and swore in blood that this is what I would do. I came back to Delhi and within a few weeks, a note was slipped under my door and it was from the guerrillas in the forest who you saw in the film, uh, saying, please come, you know, and stay, live with us for a while and how was I going to say no to that, you know? So I went. Of course, uh, at that time I thought that I had broken my promise to John, but of course that was an experience that was going to be very much part of this book. And so he was somebody who had that poetry about him, you know, that, that, that ability to, to, to be fearless about... Uh, you know, for me, the idea is that if, you, if you're going to live in India or Denmark or wherever you live and you, you're going to not be able to look at something political straight in the eye, if you're not going to be able to look at what's happening in Kashmir or what's happening with caste, it's like criticizing someone, to, someone who stopped where there's been a car crash and saying, why do you stop? Why don't you just move on? Or why have you... Uh, to, to not write about these things is to take some very complicated yoga position where <laughs> you just twist yourself in a place where it's completely unnatural, you know? You, you, you write somewhere that we are a, a strange creature, a nearsighted creature, that we are not quite able to live in the presence and in the same time we can't really see beyond the horizon or very far ahead in the future. And that's part of our... Tragedy. Tragedy, yes. Yes. It is, because, I mean, in, in increasingly one of the great drawbacks of this idea of uh, democracy is that y you see in five-year cycles, you know, and we are not able to be prophetic and we're not able to be like animals who live in the present. And one of the things that I feel is very important now, you know, and that is why I feel the great danger of domesticating writers. I mean, in the earlier times, writers used to be dangerous creatures, you know. Writers used to be feared. They used to be killed and beheaded, but they used to be free. Now you have embroiled them so much in the marketplace that they are expected to live somewhere between book festivals and bestseller lists and booker <laughs> prizes. And so you, you domesticate them, right? And so um, then they begin to fear displeasing people. They begin to fear not selling. Whereas 
today more than any time else, I feel it so clearly in, in, in India that you need the power of that person who can stand alone and say, I disagree, I denounce you, I condemn you, even if I'm alone. Don't buy my books, but I condemn you, <laughs> you know? It's so important now for the writer to be the powerful person that they used to be instead of this commodity or this toy that is produced at book festivals and sponsored by corporate companies who are in Jaipur discussing free speech and in the forest killing indigenous people, you know? But it seems that the situation for you in India is so much more dramatic than a Western writer just freeing, f fearing, uh, the repercussions of the market, if he's a bit controversial, because there's an increasing level of violence, and you have been threatened. And there was even a time uh, where you briefly fled from all the turbulence in order to find peace of mind to finish your novel. That was the me at my most vulnerable, which was just a few months before I finished this, when uh, there were there was a uprisings in all the university campuses around this whole majoritarianism and, you know, the right-wing, Hindu right-wing and the economic right-wing somehow waltzing together and coming, fusing into some kind of a divine union. And uh, the, the students were being arrested uh, there were big marches by these nationalists on the streets. They were, re they were entering courtrooms and beating up people. And then suddenly on the main television news channel was this man saying, yeah, you know, but the thing is that these are our students, but who's the person behind all this, you know? Who has written X and Y and Z and it's Arundhati Roy, you know, and why is she not behind mm. bars, more or less? And so I, I, I really worried, only because I wanted to finish, you know. So I left, uh, but I returned in about 10 days because I couldn't be that person who was, you know, trying to escape. So I went back and finished it regardless. But uh, the, the thing is that, you know, it's, it's really fascinating if you, I mean, I, I, I've just been writing this lecture that I'm going to be doing in London in a few days. It's the W.G. Zebald Lecture on Literary Translation. And so most people do it about the work of translators or they do it about mm. their work in translation. And my lecture's called In, in What Language Does It Rain? over tormented cities. And the fact that, you know, I, I think I wanted to say the Ministry of Utmost Happiness translated from the originals by Arundhati Roy, because it's imagined in so many languages. And when I was writing this, I was thinking, I was looking through how much, uh, how much writers novels and poetry from the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries are still agitating people. Like when Anjum and Zakir Mia, her father's old friend, they go to Gujarat. And one of the things they do is to, to go to pay their respects to the shrine of 
a 17th century, no, 16th century poet called Wali Gujarati or Wali Dakhni, he's mm. called the wise man mm. of the Deccan. He was the father of Urdu poetry. And in 2002, the mobs burnt down his grave, desecrated it, and made a road over it. Why would somebody be threatened by some poet of love who wrote 300 years ago? The slogans that they use on the streets are from novels of 1880. You know, so, the other people's tombs they burnt were a, a, a great Hindustani classical music vocalist called Fayaz Khan, who used to sing about Krishna. So the, these symbols of the past, of art, of poetry, of music, are so terrifying to them, you know, and, and they understand the power of art, the mobs of today. They understand and they have very good taste you know, so it's, it's so real and it's so uh, deep what's going on, you know. So for, for a writer like me, it's not about, I mean, my, my writing is not decided by critics or reviews or awards. It's, it's, it's negotiated on the streets, you know. So it's... Uh, in a way, that's how it should be. You know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not protected in an establishment. It's out on the road in some way, you know. It's, of course, it's also literally so. It's pirated and sold to me. Would you like to buy cheap paperback, Arundhati Roy? I'm like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think that this fear and hatred of poetry or art, it gives you a lot of reason for optimism. Because yes. it proves the power of art That's and what the I'm word. Saying. And I yeah. think a lot of Western writers will react in an other way. They're disillusioned about the power of their own words. They think it just drown in this cacophony of the mass media, mm. where there are so many impressions, so many sensations. Who gives a shit what a writer says? Um, and I had a little experience about the power of the words, which I was taught by my daughter, who was back then 13 years old, and we were going to a demonstration in favor of Iraqi asylum seekers who were going to be returned to wonderful Iraq. We'd been there, we made it mm. a wonderful country. Uh, and they didn't want to go because mm. with families and so mm. on, there was no future, mm. there was only violence. And so I was going to speak at a demonstration and I asked her whether she wanted to come along and she said yes. And then she asked me this crucial question, do you think that your words will have any effect? Will it help? And I was faced with this dilemma, which I think you often have with kids. Am I going to disillusion her or am I going to keep up her illusions? Am I going to tell her the honest truth? And I decided for the honest truth and I said, well, I'll be honest with you, I don't think it will help. Mm. Uh, and then she said, why are you doing it? I said, because I don't want somebody to one day accuse me of remaining silent. And then she got very angry and said, that's not good enough. And I say, why is it not good enough? She said, because you've got to believe in what you're doing. And that was a lesson to me. 
Well, that's the, the, the thing is that, you know, um, I, I, I think one of the, one of the things uh, John Berger did for me, he, he actually sent me a book of his, which I just opened at a page like that, and, and it said, I'm thinking of you, Arundhati, you know, and, it, and he was like, why do you keep doing what you do? Uh, whether you know that you win something or not. Because every word you write, you're telling them, I'm not going to be zero, you know? Mm. Every word is saying, I'm, we are alive. And even if we don't win, we know what you're doing. You know, and for me, it's not necessarily about winning and losing. It's also true that I'd rather go down on on this side than you know be on that. But also, you see, as a writer, who is, you know, I mean, I can't be disillusioned. To be honest, I can't be. Like for example, when I went into the forest with the comrades, and you saw those women dancing, if the camera had panned a bit, I was there arm in arm with them. Yeah, and I, we just need to tell that you did actually a very extraordinary things. I think it was back in 2011. Yeah. When you went into the jungle of central India with Maoist guerrillas, probably most of you don't even know that there is quite a strong yeah. movement there yeah. of Naxalites, as yeah. they call themselves. It was a, it was a and you went with them, and yeah. you were there for many weeks yeah. in the and jungle. And then, I, I mean, there was a moment at which we all went to the river to bathe, you know. I was thinking, just look at who these women are in the river. There was me, there was armed female gorillas, 48, I mean, half the gorilla army are women. And then there were women farmers. All of us were bathing, you know, the writer, the farmer, mm. the soldier. And I wrote uh, this uh, essay, little book called Walking with the Comrades. And one of the, uh, one of the things that I wrote in there was about you know, the first night when we met up with the guerrilla squad and then how we settled in to sleep under some rock. And I said, so here I had my private suite in my thousand star hotel, you know? So, Many weeks after this essay came out, uh, this handwritten note, you know, passed from hand to hand to hand to hand, takes six, seven weeks to come out of the forest. And it said, uh, it said uh, in Hindi, you know, Aapke jane ke baad jungle mein khushi ka leher phela, meaning aapka likhne ke baad, like after you wrote, a, a, a breeze of happiness went through this forest and there were all these, you know, little pressed flowers and stuff and then it was signed the PRO Thousand Star Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know, you know that the, when, when you're inside and when you're involved in, in things in a very, very local way, you're not thinking about winning you know, some huge policy change in the climate conference in Paris. You're thinking about just now, you know, how do you, how do you just push this thing back for now? And, and the fact is that you never know, right? You never know when you're, you're fighting here, but you might be winning something there, you know? And 
any case, one maybe it's this book, but one of my books is dedicated to those who have learned to divorce hope from reason. <laughs> you know, because because hope is it's that thing in your DNA, right? That you don't just. Uh, I, I mean, even when you're in this. Every time any group of these guerrillas would meet another group, they would have this song of greeting, you know? And they would say, Fir milenge, we'll see you again, knowing that it might be highly unlikely, because so many of them are just killed in the most brutal ways, you know? And yet there was so much laughter in the forest, you know? I mean, I remember watching one of them one night, uh, everyone was asleep, and I could just see this little computer screen, and this guy was, you know, typing. So I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm typing a denial, you know, because there's all this propaganda against him in the press. So I said, he said, you know, we could, we could publish a series, like a whole volume of denials. So I said, oh, what's the funniest denial that you ever had to issue? So he said, Bhai sahab, humne gai ko hathode se nahi mara, which means, no brother, we didn't hammer the cows to death. So <laughs> that was because, you know, the chief minister of that place, for his election campaign, he had promised that every indigenous person would get a cow if he won the election. So when he won, basically they rounded up all these elderly cows then they gave them to these contractors and said, now you have to take them and deliver them. The cows were not making the journey, the contractors were not interested. So they just said, oh, the Maoists kill the cows, you know? So the Maoists are like issuing this denial that no, no, we, did, they, we didn't hammer them to death. And, you know, so... You, you just, know, there's, there's a quote, I, well, way of a phrase that I know you hate, which is when somebody says to you, you give voice to the voiceless, because your, your answer is, no, I don't, because they have their own voice, but either people don't listen or they yeah, are silent. I said there's no such thing as the voiceless, there's yeah. only the deliberately so, silent. It, it's in your novel, I mean, it's, it's a lot of the characters have a really hard life, but they're never victims. No. They are not, and uh, in fact, I think that um, when people read it and understand it, Anjum, who survives the Gujarat massacre, is unable to continue the life, and then she moves into this graveyard mm. just outside the walls of the old city. But then when she recovers, she builds the Jannat guest house, which Jannat is paradise in Urdu. And I mean, if I were you, I'd be very honored if, if she invited you there, you know? It's a beautiful place to live. And um, I, I, would, I, I think that it is, uh, if, you, if you eventually look at who lives in that guest house, who dies there, who's buried there, what kinds of prayers are said there, it's revolution, you know? But it's, it's, it, it takes a long time. I mean, you, la, you know, the, the Ministry of Atmos Happiness and the people in it are not easily consumed and consumable. Mm -hmm. So you need to 
un, I mean, is it, it takes a while to fully understand all the layers of it. The international image of, of India right now is that it has become a global super, superpower, a kind of global player, and there is an explosively growing middle class that counts maybe as many people as there are in Europe, three or four hundred millions. But then again, there's like eight or nine hundred million Indians who live on 30, 50 cents a day in a poverty more abject than the one south of Sahara in Africa. And, and you write in a place that, in, in one of your texts, you write that it is as if the Indian middle class has somehow immigrated to outer space. Seceded. It has so little contact with yeah. the reality of the great majority of Indians. But you are often accused of being against progress. Uh, and, but you, while you combine the two words, progress and genocide, you think often the effects of progress is the annihilation of people. Yes, because, because of course, you know, this is all language play, you know? Who decides uh, what is called progress? Mm -hmm. what, what is the free market? I mean, what is free about the free market? You know, these are all games that are played. I was, I was once at a, I, I was in, uh, invited to the World Water Forum at The Hague at the time when I was writing about the dams, you know, and I don't go to these things, so I didn't go. I mean, and I Hague is a festival I, in the UK. Hague, no, no, no the Hague. Hague okay, in, yes. In Holland, <laughs> a World Water Forum in yeah. The Hague. So I said, no, I'm, I, I'm not coming, I don't go to these things. And then I heard that uh, the Indian government was sending you know, a whole team there, and it was all about getting involved with the privatization of water, the defense of big dams. So I just arrived to wreck the proceedings. And I was on a panel which, of people who called themselves writers, you know. But they were writers of these kind of privatization policies and so on. So everyone was supposed to introduce themselves and say why they write about water. So this American person sitting next to me, I forgot what his name was, Roger something, and I write about water because I'm paid a great deal to write about water. And uh, I just wanted to say that God gave us the delivery systems, but he, no, God gave us the rivers, but he didn't put in the delivery systems, and for this we need private enterprise. So I said, well, I, I'm you know, Arundhati, and I write about water because I'd be paid a great deal not to. And, and, and I, said, I said, you know, I don't know how you people can call yourselves writers, because writers spend their life trying to close the gap between language and thought. And you just spend your life trying to develop a language to mask thought. So everything you say, every word you use, you mean the opposite, you know? When you say democracy, you mean the opposite. When you say empowerment, you mean the opposite. Whatever you say, you mean the opposite. So it's like, for me, it's like being in a room full of dead people, you know, trying to invent some language to speak to each other, your untruths. So 
all these are language games, you know, development, progress, progress for whom, development for whom, and so on. And now, of course, uh, basically the Indian government has realized, you know, that the only way you can push through these policies is with violence, with military force, with police deployed. So you have the army in Kashmir, you have the paramilitary in the center, you have these huge corporations that, um, like mining corporations, you know, for example, a, a corporation called Vedanta, which uh, is a big sponsor of the Jaipur Literature Festival, but last week shot 13 people dead on the streets of uh, uh, Tamil Nadu, you know, because that goes with your free speech, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a very deadly churning where you have 200,000 farmers who have committed suicide because they are in debt. Uh, you have this widening gap, you have malnutrition of the levels that are unknown anywhere else, you know. So you can't call that progress, no? And then people say, oh, you're being negative. That's like, oh, so there are 10 people in a room, two are doing really well, three are okay, and the rest are starving, and you're like, why don't you just talk about those two guys, you know? Why, why are you interested in the others? That's the logic. There is a brilliant passage in your foreword to listening to Grasshoppers, a book from 2009, a collection of your essays, where you describe the hostilities between the Pakistani and Indian army taking place high up in the Himalayas on a glacier. And as they shoot at each other, the glaciers are melting below their feet. Um, and that doesn't seem to bother anybody. So could you please read that passage? Sure. Um, perhaps the story of the Siachen Glacier, the highest battlefield in the world, is the most appropriate metaphor for the insanity of our times. Thousands of Indian and Pakistani soldiers have been deployed there, enduring chill winds and temperatures that dip to minus 40 degrees Celsius. Of the hundreds who have died there, many have died from the cold, from frostbite and sunburn. The glacier has become a garbage dump now, littered with the detritus of war. Thousands of empty artillery shells, empty fuel drums, ice axes, old boots, tents, and every other kind of waste that thousands of warring human beings generate. The garbage remains intact, perfectly preserved at those icy temperatures, a pristine monument to human folly. While the Indian and Pakistani governments spend billions of dollars on weapons and the logistics of high-altitude warfare, the battlefield has begun to melt. Right now, it has shrunk to about half its size. The melting has less to do with the military standoff than with people far away on the other side of the world living the good life. They're good people who believe in peace, free speech, and in human rights. They live in thriving democracies whose governments sit on the UN Security Council and whose economies depend heavily on the export of war and the sale of weapons to countries like India and Pakistan. 
and Rwanda, Sudan, Somalia, the Republic of Congo, Iraq, Afghanistan. It's a long list. The glacial melt will cause, cause severe floods in the subcontinent and eventually severe drought that will affect the lives of millions of people. That'll give us even more reasons to fight. We'll need more weapons. Who knows that sort of consumer confidence may be just what the world needs to get over the current recession. Then everyone in the thriving democracies will have an even better life, and the glaciers will melt even faster. There's a lot of foresight in that. You wrote it in 2009, and the climate changes were well underway, but we didn't talk much about it. But you already warned about it back then. And, and today in Denmark, it is a special day because today Parliament um, passed a law against burkas. It's now forbidden. You will be fined if you wear them. Against what? Burkas. Burkas. Burkas, oh. yes. And, and in the same essay, as you just quoted from, you also write about burkas. Uh, and you write, um, to, if you forbid the burqa, if you take it away uh, by force, you are not liberating the woman, but unclosing her, an act of humiliation, uh, co coercing a woman out of the burqa is as bad as coercing her into one. Well, often these battles have been fought on women's bodies, you know. I mean, when the British came to India, initially the whole, or not just the British, whoever, you know, uh, tribal indigenous peoples are made to cover up. Then when they are covered up, they are made to take it off. It's all about controlling the body of the woman, you know, and fighting your battles on that. So, uh, you know, who's to say that between Botox and Burka, it's a great choice. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so, so, but the thing is that there's a connection, you know, which is one that I think we should all be very aware of, that with the shrinking of resources, you know, the, with the lowering of the water table in, let's say, places like Africa, with the desertification that comes with climate change. When human societies are fighting over shrinking resources, they do resort to, uh, to tribal identities in order to stake your claim, you know? So often what looks like one tribe fighting another, or one caste fighting another, or one country fighting another, isn't just an arbitrary thing about identity. It is also about that, you know? And, and you often don't know the real reasons for why you're coalescing around these kinds of identities. Which is why I think uh, the way we are being trained to think now, or even function, you know? The way academics or even books, uh, novels, or anything, NGO funding application. Everything has a heading, 
right? Are you an expert on gender? Are you an expert on caste? Are you a peace NGO in Kashmir? Are you an environmentalist? And if you are this, then you must know nothing about that, you know? And yet, all these things are connected, and it is fiction that can connect them, you know? Therefore, it's not that you're just taking issues and sticking them into a book. Actually, it's the people who are disaggregating them that are uh, de-radicalizing and understanding. I guess that these tribal identities that we somehow retreat to or regress to, they are, of course, the opposite of universal values because their message is, you and I have nothing in common, so we can't live together. You have to leave. I will ethnically cleanse you, or if you don't move, I'll have to kill you. Um, and art is the opposite because it's about universal values that we all share. It shows us that we have no matter whether we have different religions or color of skin, we still have something in common. Totally. But, but I mean, Absolutely. you are living in, in India with a prime minister, which we would call a populist. Politely. Or maybe you would call him something <laughs> worse. You would probably call him a fascist. And it's a growing trend in, in Europe. And there's, let's be polite again, a populist president in the US, Donald Trump, and you have compared your Narendra Modi and Trump to each other. My and you, Narendra you, Modi, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and you see, you see a difference. Yeah, there, there's a very big difference. Actually, you think Modi is more dangerous than Trump. There's a big difference. Uh, I mean, obviously, in a sense, Trump is more powerful, you know, he can, he can he can order a war in Iraq, Iran tomorrow and all of that. But as system, systemically, when I look at it, I see Trump as somebody who, who, who has come out of the affluent of a system that has gone wrong. You know, he's, he's come from that discarded um, affluent of a factory produce, where the Democrats actually in the US failed in everything that they claim to be. They failed to represent workers. They failed to be on the side of the dispossessed. Instead, they became almost more elitist than the Republicans, which is where the space for Trump was created. Um, but Modi, as I have said, is a product that's been coming for a since 1925, you know? And in, the, in America, the elite institutions are extremely worried about Trump. The army is worried, the media is worried, the justice system is worried, because they don't know, I mean, maybe they don't have the protocol to take someone who's unsound of mind out of the White House, but they're still trying to manage, you know? Whereas in India, the elite institutions are all already uh, taken over by this mindset of the RSS. You know, so the intelligence agencies, the courts, the academia, the media. I mean, last week there was this extraordinary moment where a completely unknown journalist 
presenting himself as a, 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 a Hindu right-wing person representing an organization that was loosely aligned to the RSS, um, went around with a secret camera and he did interviews with 136 media outlets, the top ones, the owners of the top media, TV, national, local and all, saying that, you know, uh, we have this huge budget. Uh, for the run-up to the election year, we would like to buy news, editorials, advertorials to promote the Hindu agenda, to promote the BJP, to destroy its rivals. And all of them except two said yes, you know. Uh, the four senior most judges of the Supreme Court came out of the court never done before in India saying democracy is in danger because the Chief Justice is compromised and he's, you know, fixing the benches, more or less, I mean, said it very subtly. So every institution, you know, all the um, teachers are being sacked and, and people who are just wanting to talk about cow urine and say that, you know, in Hinduism invented um, plastic surgery because we have an elephant-headed god. I mean, just crazy stuff, you know. And it's, it's, so, so you are faced with a situation where a new generation could be educated on these textbooks that are talking absolute rubbish and uh, uh, nobody knows what to do about it. Even if they were to lose the next elections, all these institutions have been penetrated by this form of thinking. So the opposition may come together in a cobbled form, but actually the, the, the whole thing is much deeper than a single election can solve, you know? We are about to, unfortunately, we soon have to end this oh. delightful <laughs> conversation. Uh, but I can't help thinking you talked about the laughter in the jungle. Mm. Um, and I think in a way it's the essence of your writing. There is a joy in life and you have an eye for the beauty of life. And I feel that somehow when you are political, it's because you feel there's an imperative, a duty to defend the joy and beauty of life whenever it is threatened. And that is the core of your political engagement. I mean, what would the point of being so ferocious be if there wasn't something wonderful to protect, you know? If it wasn't done in order to, to, to protect something that you adore, you know? So uh, for me, it surely starts from there. It surely starts from there, you know? And the idea of some humorless, cold, loveless, uh, policy-ridden policy uh, revolution of the mind makes no sense, you know? It is, it's really, I, I do believe that, uh, that, that, that eventually it has to be a battle of, of spirit, you know, it has to be a battle of, uh, of soul, of love, of uh, things which uh, are way beyond reason. Uh, and we have to be unreasonable people, 
when we go up against the the barbed wire, you know. And now you will end by reading uh, an excerpt from your novel. Yeah. Let me find it. And before you do that, I just want once again, and I think on behalf of all of us here, to thank you for oh, your books, thank you. your writing, your courage. Thank you. And, and I think my we all feel naughtiness. deep respect. And my for you. naughtiness. Yes, <laughs> your naughtiness too. <laughs> Courage is second. So uh, this is uh, a chapter called "The Untimely Death of Miss Jubin the First," and it starts with a, a quote of James Baldwin, which is a wonderful quote. He says, "And they would not believe me precisely because." they would know that what I said was true. Ever since she was old enough to insist, she had insisted on being called Miss Jubin. It was the only name she would answer to. Everyone had to call her that. Her parents, her grandparents, the neighbors too. She was a precocious devotee of the Miss fetish that gripped the Kashmir Valley in the early years of the insurrection. All of a sudden, fashionable young ladies, especially in the towns, insisted on being addressed as Miss, Miss Momin, Miss Ghazala, Miss Farhana. It was only one of the many fetishes of the time. In those blood-dimmed years, for reasons nobody fully understood, people became what can only be described as fetish prone. Other than the Miss fetish, there was a nurse fetish, a PT instructor fetish, and a roller skating fetish. So in addition to check posts, bunkers, weapons, grenades, landmines, cassipers, concertina wire, soldiers, insurgents, counterinsurgents, spies, special operatives, double agents, triple agents, and suitcases of cash from the agencies on both sides of the border. The valley was also awash with nurses, PT instructors, and roller skaters. And of course, Mrs. Among them, Miss Jubin, who didn't live long enough to become a nurse, nor even a roller skater. In the Mazar-e-Shahuda, the martyr's graveyard, where she was first buried, the cast-iron signboard that arched over the main gate said in two languages, we gave our todays for your tomorrows. It's corroded now, the green paint faded, the delicate calligraphy flecked with pinholes of light. Still, there it is after all those years, silhouetted like a swatch of stiff lace against the sapphire sky and the snowy, saw-toothed mountains. There it still is. Miss Jabeen was not a member of the committee that decided what should be written on the signboard, but she was in no position to argue with its decision. Also, Miss Jabeen hadn't notched up very many todays to trade in for tomorrows. But then the algebra of infinite justice was never so rude. In this way, without being consulted on the matter, she became one of the movement's youngest martyrs. She was buried right next to her mother, Begum Arifa Yesvi. Mother and daughter died by the same bullet. 
It entered Miss Chibin's head through her left temple and came to rest in her mother's heart. In the last photograph of her, the bullet wound looked like a cheerful summer rose arranged just above her left ear. A few petals had fallen on her coffin, the white shroud she was wrapped in before she was laid to rest. Miss Jubin and her mother were buried along with 15 others taking the toll of their massacre to 17. At the time of their funeral, the Mazar e Shahada was still fairly new, but was already getting crowded. However, the Intizamia Committee, the organizing committee, had its ear to the ground from the very beginning of the insurrection and had a realistic idea of things to come. It planned the layout of the graves carefully, making ordered, efficient use of the available space. Everyone understood how important it was to bury martyrs' bodies in collective burial grounds and not leave them scattered in their thousands, like bird feed up in the mountains or in the forests around the army camps and torture centers that had mushroomed across the valley. When the fighting began and the occupation tightened its grip, for ordinary people, the consolidation of their dead became in itself an act of defiance. Thank you. Live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek går på sommerferie, men vender tilbage til september med nye podcasts fra den sorte diamants kulturscene. Husk, at du, som altid, kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen. Vi høres ved.